invite you to take your copy of God's Word today, open it again to the Gospel of John, uh, this week, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23 will be our focal passage this morning. Today we are concluding our uh, series, uh, centering around or highlighting our mission and uh, vision for making disciples as a church here in West Albuquerque. We, several weeks ago, at the beginning of this month, began... Uh, with a morning of prayer. Uh, We took the next week, uh, second week of January, to review our mission as it comes to us from God's Word. We exist to glorify God. That is to make more worshipers of God and all the earth to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. The week after that, we looked at the first aspect of the kind of disciples that we want to make as a church. Disciples who know Christ as Lord through His Word. Who don't just know what is true about Jesus, but who also truly know Jesus in relationship with Him. Last week, we looked at the second aspect of disciples that we want to make. Disciples who are helping one another grow in maturity and faithfulness to Christ as we abide in Christ, as we maintain that vital connection to Him, bearing fruit of more disciples and bearing fruit of the Spirit in our own lives, fruit of Christ-likeness in us and helping others to do the same. This week we look at the last aspect of disciples that we want to make, followers of Jesus that we want to develop into and help others develop into, and that is disciples who go to our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to look this morning specifically at that call that Jesus gives to his disciples to go with the gospel, that sending, that commission that Christ gives to his church. Here's the main idea of our time together in God's word. It's the main idea of John 20, verses 19 through 20, that Jesus Christ has commissioned his people to continue his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ has commissioned his people, his disciples, all who call on him in faith to continue his ministry in the power of his Holy Spirit. As we see this truth unfold for us in John chapter 20, I hope that we would find ourselves this morning to be found joyful, vigilant, and active in continuing Jesus' gospel ministry in the world. Let us be joyful, vigilant, and active in continuing Jesus' ministry in the world. I invite you, stand with me as you're comfortably able to honor God as we read his word. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. This passage takes place on the same day of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Crucified on a Friday, raised in glory on Sunday morning. This is evening of that same Sunday first resurrection day. John the disciple writes, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Jesus Christ 
has commissioned his people to continue his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the main idea of this, uh, of this passage in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. We see three things about Jesus and his activity with his disciples here. First of all, we see in verses 19 and 20 that the risen Jesus is the hope of his people. Before we even get into commissioning, see this, because John wants us to see this. The risen Jesus is the hope and joy of his people. As we said, this passage takes place on the same day as Jesus' resurrection. Earlier that morning, Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb to tend to the body that was hastily buried uh, uh, just two days, three days before to tend to his body to make sure it was embalmed for, for burial for the long term. And as she arrives, she finds the stone of the tomb rolled away and an angelic being standing there saying, who are you looking for? Why are you here? Jesus isn't here. He has risen. And Mary Magdalene runs back, races back to the disciples, tells them what has taken in place. Peter and John, and maybe some disbelief, some joy, race to the tomb to see uh, that, that indeed it was empty. And, uh, and there they are just uh, befuddled at what has gone on. They're kind of shell-shocked, but also glad. And they go running back to tell the rest of the disciples that, yes, it's true, he's not there. Then Mary Magdalene goes back to the uh, garden again, and she's met there by the risen Jesus, who reveals himself to her. Later that day, as this text picks up, the disciples have gone back to that upper room that was rented that, that holy week be, uh, before Jesus' uh, arrest and crucifixion, that room that they had rented to celebrate the Passover in. They've gone into that room and locked the door. Why? Because they're afraid that the same Jewish leaders who had Jesus uh, uh, falsely uh, arrested and executed on trumped-up charges, they're afraid they may come after them too. We saw how they treated Jesus. We might be next. Let's lock the door. In the middle of this locked room, with his disciples huddled together in fear over what may happen next, not sure about what it means that the tomb is empty, there in the middle of that room, out of nowhere, without a knock, without any announcement, inexplicably, Jesus appears in the room. The doors locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Jesus shows the disciples his hands and his side where his hands were pierced with nails. His side that was, uh, sorry, wrong side, left side, that was pierced by that Roman centurion's spear, demonstrating to them he really is Jesus in the flesh, risen and alive. His passage into that locked room without knocking on the door, without opening the door, demonstrates in some way that he in his glorified state is even more real than the door that is locked, than the walls that are in place. And what does he say when he sees the disciples? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. The Hebrew or Aramaic equivalent would be something like shalom. It's a, it's a greeting of peace, a, 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 a kind of a prayerful wish for God to bring peace and wholeness among those that are there. But also that greeting, peace be with you, is, is in some ways similar to the greeting from, uh, uh, that, that other people received from either visions of God or angels from the Lord of do not be afraid. Or certainly Jesus' appearance in the middle of this room that was locked to keep everybody out would have been startling to the disciples, right? I mean, have you ever had somebody just like sneak up on you when you did not expect them to come? Like, that'll freak you out. Pastor Danny is like a ninja in the office. 
The man is the most quiet walker I've ever heard. And if I had a nickel for every time he came around a corner, I did not expect him to come around. Friends, I could probably buy us all lunch today. Jesus appears in the room more real than even the walls that kept everybody else out. And in the middle of this scared, huddled group of disciples, he says, peace, shalom, don't be afraid. And how the disciples respond when they see Jesus? They are glad. Actually, that's not really the best way to describe it. The English Standard Version, as it translates that word, translates it saying the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, anytime we're translating the Bible from its original Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek into English, uh, Greek in the case of the New Testament, we have to make choices about what English word best fits this Greek word. And there's not always perfect equivalents. Glad is probably not the best equivalent of the word that is used there. Some of you may be reading from the New Living Translation, which says the disciples were filled with joy. Or from the New International Version, it says the disciples were overjoyed when they saw that it was the Lord. The ESV's translation as the disciples being glad is probably a little bit too understated. It's not wrong. It's maybe just not, not quite conveying the joy that the disciples had. What the disciples experienced was more than just relief that Jesus was alive, that he was raised from the dead, but real rejoicing in the fact that he had defeated death. Peace be with you. hey Jesus is here! Right? I mean, like, that's, the disciples probably didn't say hey right? But that's like rejoicing. The risen Jesus is the hope of his people, the joy of his people. Understand this this morning, friends, before we even go any further into this text, that because Jesus is surely risen, we have a confident hope. We have a confident joy as his followers. Jesus' appearance to his disciples, it's not just him showing off. It's not just him messing around with them like, now he's raised from the dead. Hey, you know what would be really funny? Pop in the room and scare my disciples a little bit, right? That's not what Jesus, no, Jesus is, is doing more even here than just paying a friendly visit to his brothers that spent three years with him. His appearance to them in this locked room, demonstrating in the flesh, his hands, his side, he really is risen, risen in the flesh, is to prove that his body was not stolen. It is to prove that his body is not lying dead in a tomb somewhere, but that he was gloriously and physically risen as he assured the disciples all through his earthly ministry that he would be. Our entire hope for salvation from sin, our entire hope for eternal life, the the joy that we have in receiving the Holy Spirit, even our sanctification, our being made more holy, rests entirely on whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead. Do you understand that? If Jesus is not raised, we have none of that. If Jesus is not raised, we have no salvation. If Jesus is not raised, we have no eternal life. If Jesus is not raised, we do not have the Holy Spirit. No matter how much we say we believe Jesus is raised, if he isn't, we don't have it. If Jesus is not raised, we have no hope or joy in ever being made really truly Christ-like from the inside out, holy from within, by God's own power working uh, within us and out of us. If Jesus isn't raised, we have none of that, you know? We're not the first to recognize this, that the risen Jesus is the hope of his people. In fact, the Apostle Paul recognized it explicitly, and he wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 20. Listen to these verses. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's powerless. It's, it's, it's pointless. And you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, says Paul. If Jesus isn't surely raised, we have no hope. But then he continues in verse 20 of the same chapter. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In the same way that he appeared to those disciples in that locked room, more real than the walls that kept him out, in the flesh, gloriously raised in power over sin and death from the grave, Jesus there demonstrates himself to be the hope of his people. The risen Jesus is the joy of his people. No wonder they were glad when they saw the Lord. Because they knew if he has raised, all of his promises are true. Friend, because Christ was surely raised, we have a confident hope and expectation that all that God's promises are true in Jesus. Do you know this? Do you know this? Christian, I know you do. Friend, you who are here this morning that may not yet know Christ, do you know this? Do you know that Jesus was surely raised from the dead? Now listen, we don't have time this morning to go into all of the historical and biblical evidences and, uh, and, and proofs of Jesus' resurrection, real resurrection from the grave, but friend, they are out there. And I would love to point you to some of those, maybe some of those resources, maybe after service today. If you're wondering, if, it's, if, if the central claim of the Bible's veracity, of its truthfulness, is whether Jesus has been raised from the dead or not, I need to know if he's been raised from the dead or not. Friend, I'm telling you, the Bible says emphatically he was, but not just the Bible. There, there are lots of other evidences and, and lots of other reasons to believe that Jesus really was raised and his promise for salvation, the, the, the hope that you have of forgiveness of sin, the, the new life and, and, and restored relationship to God that you might have through faith in Jesus, the indwelling Holy Spirit of God in you as you trust Christ. These are all realities that can be yours if you trust Christ who is raised from the dead. Do you know this? The risen Jesus is the hope of his people. And because he's risen, we have confident expectation, confident hope for our salvation. But second, we learn in verse 21, so we see the risen Jesus being the gladness of his disciples. But secondly, the sent Jesus sends his people. The sent Jesus sends his people. In verse 21, Jesus repeats his greeting of peace, like maybe the disciples didn't hear it the first time. I don't know. It's a good greeting. It's good to give it twice. And then he commissions his disciples. He says, peace be with you for the second time. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Catch this. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Jesus is saying in the same manner that the Father sent me, I'm commissioning you. I'm I'm giving you a task. I am sending you out into the world. Jesus is sent by the Father. And the sent Jesus sends his people. This, this concept, this theme of Jesus being sent by the Father is a major theme in John's gospel. As I was reading it in study this week, as the Father sent me, so I also send you, I thought, let me just do a search, uh, because I have the software and the tools to, be, tools to be able to do it really quickly. Let me just do a quick search of all the times that Jesus says he was, or just the word sent appears in John's gospel in connection with Jesus. Friends, over 40 times in John's gospel, Jesus is referred to as being the one sent by the Father. 
40 times in John's gospel. You'll never read the gospel of John the same way again. Now that you know that, you'll see it over and over and over again, multiple times throughout almost every chapter of John's gospel. Jesus pointing out that the Father has sent him. What does God the Father send his son, Jesus, to do? Two things. One biblical scholar says, we could sum it all up this way. First of all, to bring God's message of salvation and life, to proclaim the gospel. And second, to reveal and confront the sin of the world. That's what Jesus is sent by the Father to do, to proclaim the gospel, the hope of salvation, and to reveal and confront sin in the world. So when Jesus here in John chapter 20 says, as the Father has sent me, he's recalling the authority and desire of God the Father to send the Son, the obedience of the Son to the Father, the redemptive purpose of the Father in sending the Son, and the resulting faith of of those that is brought about by the Son's sending. So when Jesus sends His disciples as the Father sent Him, He's employing the same pattern. He's sending His disciples to do much of the same sort of things. Because the Father has authority to send His Son, so Jesus has authority to send His disciples. As the Father desires to send His Son to do a ministry prepared for Him, to proclaim a gospel, to die for sins as part of His eternal plan, so also Jesus desires to send His disciples to do a ministry prepared for them. As the Father sends the Son to take the gospel message into the world, that by faith in Him there is salvation, so also Jesus sends His disciples with the same message. There is hope for salvation by trusting in Christ. And just as God the Father intends the ministry of the Son to bring about belief in the Son and the eternal life that follows, so also Jesus intends the ministry of His disciples to bring about belief in Him and the eternal life that comes with it. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The sent Jesus sends his people. Know this, as Christians, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, continuing the ministry of Jesus is not optional. It is a joyous calling. It is not optional, but it is a joyous calling. Jesus sends, he commissions, he commands his disciples to go. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. He's speaking in the future tense, but also with certainty. You will be my witnesses. It's a promise. When the, Holy Spirit, when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you to Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. As Christians, continuing the ministry of Jesus is not optional, but it is a joyous calling. Know this. Joy in Christ always precedes obedience to Christ. Joy in Christ always precedes obedience to Christ. And joy in Christ, the gladness of the disciples, even precedes the commissioning, the sending of the disciples in this passage. Did you see that? Jesus appears, peace be with you. Hey, oh, Jesus is raised. Jesus says, I'm so happy you're glad about that. Listen, I've got work for you to do. Joy always precedes obedience. Love of Christ always comes before obedience to Christ. In fact, obedience to Christ without love of Christ is just drudgery. Consider Jesus' obedience to the Father to die for sins. Not because the Father was forcing him against his will. Do we ever see that in the Gospels? No. But because there is an eternal relationship of love between God the Father and God the Son that results in Jesus' delight, his joy to do the Father's will. Because it's his will too. 
Because of the, the relationship, of the eternal relationship of mutual love between the Father and the Son, the Son delights to do the Father's will, which is to die for the sins of the world. Because of the relationship of love between Christ and His church, that results in delight, in joy for the church to do what Christ desires for them to do. Continuing the ministry of Jesus, proclaiming the gospel in the world, is not optional, but it is a joyous calling. Serving the lost of this world with the hope of abundant and renewed spiritual life in Christ is not a possibility for us as brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus. It's a command. It's not one among many things we could do. It is the thing Christ has commanded us to do. We have been sent. We've been commissioned by Jesus to continue his ministry. But the task of proclaiming hope to the hopeless and proclaiming joy to the burdened is not meant, friends, to be a drudgery. We are not meant or designed by God as He works salvation in us to be bored or grumpy or burdened or to feel obligated to tell other people about Jesus and the hope that there is. Friends, to reveal sin and confront injustice and call people to repentance is not a lost cause. It is the very mission of Jesus given to his followers to call a lost and a dying world to find life in him. This is a joyous calling that we gladly carry out as followers of Christ because we have come to love Christ and delight in him above all else. The sent Jesus sends his people going In obedience to the sending is not an option, but it's also not a drudgery. It is a joyous calling. Just stop a minute and reflect on this. The eternal God of the universe has sent His Son to die for your sins and mine. And friend, I know my sins. I don't know too many people that would want to die for them. I know zero. (laughs) You know your sins. You know how unworthy you are of someone dying in your place that you might be right with God. Now consider that God not only demonstrates his love for you, that he sends his son to die for your sins in their totality and to save you from your sin, but that same God of the universe also not just saves you, but sends you to say, Stephen, now you're on my team. You're my ambassador. You are the one who carries my message into the world that others might hear it and believe too. That others might know the love that I have for them, the way that I've demonstrated it to them, the hope for salvation that is theirs in Jesus. He said that to you, Fred, and Joe, and Nikki, and Susan, and Jim, and Danny, and Jen, right? All of us who have trusted Christ, have been sent by Christ to delight, to embrace this joyful calling, to take the best news in all the universe and beyond to those that need to hear it. Continuing the ministry of Jesus isn't optional, but God has made it to be a joyous calling. The sent Jesus sends his people. And as this passage closes in verses 22 and 23, we see the divine Jesus empowers his people. The risen Jesus is the hope of his people. The sent Jesus sends his people. The divine Jesus empowers his people. And friends, these are not three different Jesuses. Verses 22 and 23 say, When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, 
Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, let's just admit this is kind of a difficult passage if we have some familiarity with the Bible and the New Testament and how certain events take place. There's some question about whether the giving of the Holy Spirit here in John 20 is a different event from the sending of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit indwells and fills the disciples and they begin doing miraculous works and proclaiming the gospel all throughout Jerusalem. Are these two different events? Does Jesus send the Holy Spirit twice? I thought he only sent it once. What's going on here? We need to remember as we come to John chapter 20 and kind of a, a, a weird, um, kind of a weird passage, it's, it's kind of maybe sometimes difficult to make sense of. We need to remember that John is writing his history of Jesus, his gospel, a little bit differently from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, he's writing much later than the other gospel writers. He has kind of a, a, a not a different point to make about Jesus, but he's making his point differently, right? And so he often, John in the course of his gospel, often compresses time. Uh, He'll move events really, really closely together in Jesus's life. Or sometimes he'll draw time way, way out to emphasize what's going on. Other times he'll he'll, uh, squeeze multiple events into one event, or or he'll move events maybe even out of time to make a point in a different place. So like uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for instance, when Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple, overturns the tables of the money changer, says, my, ha- my father's house to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. That, you sh- that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke happens at the end of their gospels. In John, it happens in chapter two. The question is, are there, are there two temple cleansings or one temple cleansing? I think the answer is there's one, but John moves that event maybe kind of as a flashback or a flash forward to the front of his gospel uh, to make a point about what's coming down the road. We, we see this happening in movies all the time where the, where the time frame shifts. You'll, you'll jump to the future or you'll jump to the past and bring you up to the future. John's doing something like that in the way that he deals with events in time in his gospel. So it's possible that John is, is writing about uh, here at the end of his gospel, uh, taking kind of a unified perspective on Jesus's crucifixion, resurrection, ascension to the Father, and sending of the Holy Spirit. So he's taking all of these events and he's kind of squeezing them into one, and, descri- and, and describing the sending of the Holy Spirit here in this place. I don't think there are two separate sendings. I think there's one. I think this is John's way of, of kind of previewing Pentecost without writing about it himself. So don't freak out about it. In his style, it's entirely possible that, that what John is doing is, is, com- is compressing historic events without changing any of their spiritual significance or reality. So, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And in giving this commission to his disciples to go, he doesn't leave them, recognize, he doesn't leave them to complete it in their own power. But he fulfills his promise to give them his own Holy Spirit. A promise that he'd given multiple times already in the Gospel of John during his earthly ministry. In John chapter 14, 26, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. In John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, when the, when the helper comes, who I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he'll bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. In John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
The role of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus has promised to his disciples multiple times in his earthly ministry, is to dwell in the lives of his followers and empower their witness and their declaration of the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us, Christian. He dwells in us to empower our witness and our declaration of the gospel. The Holy Spirit illumines our understanding of God's word. He gives us boldness to proclaim the gospel. He uses our lives and the word of God to continue revealing sin in the world and to call people from every place to repent and trust Christ. And the Holy Spirit does this in and through the people of God as they carry out Jesus' commission, as they are sent and walk in that sentness. Now, I started by making this point by saying the divine Jesus empowers his people because the Holy Spirit is said to be sent from God. He is God's own spirit. Jesus says in John uh, 15 that the Father will send the Spirit. And then in John 16, he says, I will send the Spirit. So the question is, who sends the Spirit? The Father or the Son? The answer is yes. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and by the Son on their mutual authority to empower the disciples of Jesus. So understand this. For Jesus to be able to empower his disciples with the Spirit of God, he must be God himself. Now I'm not saying, hear what I'm saying, and hear what I'm not saying. I am saying Jesus, the Son of God, is God. I am not saying that Jesus is the same God as the Father. No, I take that back. He's the same God as the Father. He's not the same person of God as the Father. Neither is he the same person of God as the Holy Spirit, but he's the same God as the Holy Spirit. Now you're all confused. Me too. We are encountering here in John chapter 20 uh, um, just another evidence of the doctrine, the teaching of the triune God in, in Scripture, that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three different gods, but one. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and back way around the triune relationship. And yet they are all God. This is a, 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 maybe a difficult thing for our minds to wrap around because there's nothing else in human experience that is like this. Right? I am one being and one person. God is one being and three persons. There's nothing else like that in human experience. So if you feel like your brain is melting out of ears, that's why. In order to, to try to communicate this as clearly as possible, Christians in history have, have worked out a, kind of a, a creedal statements about this. A creed is just kind of a, a mutual confession, a, 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 a kind of a binding statement of belief. Athanasius, one of the early uh, Christian fathers and a bishop in the church in about the 4th century, 300s, uh, wrote, a, uh, wrote a creedal statement, a statement about what we believe about the triune God here, that the, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are, not, they are all one, the same God, but they are not the same person. Hear these words and how Athanasius describes it. He says, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the, the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. But the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. What the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit, 
Eternal is the Father, eternal is the Son, eternal is the Holy Spirit. And yet there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. And there are not three uncreated and unlimited beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. The divine Jesus empowers his disciples because he has authority as God to send the Spirit of God to indwell his disciples. Not only does Jesus empower his people with the Holy Spirit, he gives them the very Spirit of God to live in them, to empower their witness. But Jesus also empowers his disciples with confidence in the gospel message. Verse 23 is kind of funky, isn't it? Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness forgiveness from many, it is withheld. Is Jesus saying that human beings have the power, the authority to take away sin? No, he's not saying that. Only God has that power. Only God has that authority. These are actions that only God can complete. Rather, what Jesus is doing here is giving his disciples authority to announce forgiveness of sins with confidence to everyone who trusts in Christ. He's giving them a confident announcement to give to anyone who trusts Jesus or anyone who denies Jesus. The one who has heard the gospel and believed it has already, at the moment of their faith, been forgiven by God. So when that one says out loud, I have trusted Christ for forgiveness, the disciple of Jesus can say, surely, because God has promised, your sins have been forgiven. And when one says, I will not trust Christ, I do not believe him, the disciple of Jesus can say, then your sins have not been forgiven. Why? Because there's one way to forgiveness. There's one way to salvation. There's one way to the Father, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son. But see, Christian, as Jesus gives, he empowers his his disciples with confidence in the gospel message. See how this is meant to empower you. You have a message to declare that is not your own. You have a message of salvation to, to proclaim, not based on your own authority, but the authority of the one who authored it. It is one conceived in the mind and the heart of God. It is declared in full by His Son who is without sin and in whom there is no deceit. You have a salvation to display that is not dependent on your own ability to display it. Praise God. It has been achieved by Christ in your place and in the place of everyone who will believe so that we can say with confidence, for all who trust Jesus, for all who depend upon Him, His sinless life, His death, his resurrection and his ascension for their right relationship with God, their sins have been forgiven. The divine Jesus empowers his disciples. Know this this morning, because Jesus gives us the gospel, and because Jesus gives us his own Holy Spirit from God, he has provided all that we need to successfully carry out this commission. It may feel like a big task, to take the gospel to all of the world, to be disciples who go to our neighbors and the nations with the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. But no, because Scripture tells us, the authoritative word of God proclaims to us, we have everything that we need to do this. Jesus says, as the Father sending me has sent me, so also I am sending you. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. I'm giving you confidence in the gospel message. And does he give them anything else? Nope. Is that somehow some deficiency in Jesus' preparation for the disciples? Absolutely not. He knows precisely what his disciples need to fulfill the mission. They need uh, confidence in the gospel and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Anything else? Nope. 
That's all they need. That's all they need. And Jesus has determined, and he has said, this is what you need to get the job done. I'm giving it all to you. Some of you know I rode a motorcycle for a few years, several years ago. It wasn't very fancy. And there was a period of time where I thought about, like, buying some accessories to fancify my motorcycle. New handlebar grips. Never, I never wanted to do tassels off the handlebars, but you've seen those guys riding down the road. Saddlebags, exhaust, all the things that are, like, easy to change. You know, you just, you unscrew one thing, you screw on another thing, right? All these bolt-on accessories to make my bike what it really, really ought to be. And we see people doing this not just with their motorcycles, but with like their four by fours and, you know, Jeeps and other stuff. Like it's bolting on all this stuff, winches and shocks and struts and all that. But none of it really changes the, the nuts and bolts, the real heart of, of what that vehicle is. You can have all of the bolt on accessories for your Harley Davidson and never ride the thing and it be pointless, right? In order for a motorcycle to do what it was meant to do, you got you to gotta start that puppy. You got to rev the engine. You got to pop the clutch and take it out on the road, right? It doesn't matter how many bolt-on accessories you put on the thing. It doesn't matter how pretty you make it look. If you don't start the thing, friend, you ain't riding a motorcycle. Sometimes I think we approach the commission of Christ to go into the world with the gospel with some apprehension as though we won't be successful until we've figured out how to answer every question and approach every situation and, and address every, uh, every possible objection there might be to the gospel. And so we spend countless hours reading and watching YouTube apologists and coming up with reasons why we can't declare the hope of the gospel. We accumulate all the bolt-on accessories for evangelism and mission to be prepared for every possible and most of the time unlikely eventuality when all the time Jesus is imploring us, I've already given you all you need. You've got the wheels of the gospel to carry you along. You've got the motor of my final command to power you. You've got the Holy Spirit fueling you. Turn the key. Rev the motor. Roll out. Now, let me say, there are things that we can, we can further equip ourselves with as we go on mission for Christ, as we take the gospel to those that need to hear it. Apologetic defenses of the gospel, those are helpful. Maybe uh, different tactics to engage people from different circumstances, and that's, what, that's helpful. But those things aren't necessary, friends. All that is necessary, Christ has given. Confidence in the gospel, empowering of his Holy Spirit. Start the engine, roll out. The divine Jesus empowers his disciples with all that they need for mission success. Church, we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a vision of making disciples who know Christ as Lord through his word, who help one another grow in maturity and obedience to Jesus, and who go to their neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the risen Lord Jesus who is our joy. His glorious calling that commissions us. And God's own Holy Spirit and the sureness of the gospel to get it done. My brothers and sisters, knowing this, let us pray and seek God's help that we might be faithful to use what he's given us for his glory as we take the hope of Jesus to those who are around us. Every Sunday this month, we've been stopping to pray that God would, help, would, would grow us in obedience, would, would guide us to respond to his word in appropriate ways. And we're going to do the same today. 
So I invite you where you are, bow your heads. We're going to pray these things together. If you need to peek, they'll be on the screen behind me. Pray, Heavenly Father, help me want to see others come to love and worship you more than anything else. God, give me that want to. Lord Jesus, be relentless in reminding me of the joy of knowing you. Make me glad in you, Jesus. Pray, Holy Spirit, point me today to one by name that you would have me tell the gospel to this week. You've sent me, Lord. You've empowered me. Give me one that you would have me share the gospel with. Friend, you may be here this morning and not yet a believer in Jesus. I invite you to perform an exercise of faith today when maybe you never have before. And as the church around you is praying, you pray, God, if this is true, if the gospel is real, if Jesus really did die for my sins and there's salvation only in him, then show me, give me faith, give me boldness to, resp- to respond by trusting Jesus today. Friends, let's take a moment to pray and then we'll worship together in song. And As we worship in song, I, I invite you, any way you need to respond in obedience to God today, maybe you need to come uh, up here to the front and maybe kneel at the steps and just pray for that one that God has, has burdened you with to share the gospel with them. Maybe you don't have joy in Christ today and you need a, a, a fresh filling of joy in Jesus. Maybe you'd come and pray that God would give you that. Maybe God's calling you to the mission field somewhere around the world or plant a church somewhere in the United States. Maybe God's calling you to partner with our friends at Casa de Mariposa. Maybe opening your home or giving time to serve women in need and their children. However you need to respond this morning as we sing in a few moments, I invite you move. There's nothing wrong with responding in prayer in your seat where you are, but sometimes, friends, we gotta, we got to get up and just move our feet a little bit. You need to come and kneel in prayer. I promise you no one's going to look at you funny. You may be an encouragement to someone else who knows that they need to move too. Friend, if you need to give your life and faith to uh, Christ today for the first time, or maybe you've already made that decision and you need to make it public to a body of believers who believe the same, as we sing, you come and let me know of that decision, and we'll rejoice with you. Let's take a moment and pray.